All right, so welcome to our first class back. It's been a while. I remember right in March, I was the we were about to do the last week of my class on the the resurrection, and um, I got sick. I wasn't it wasn't COVID, but I was like, oh, like, in the in the current that climate, I didn't want to come in when I was sick, so didn't even finish that class really. I think I just sent out notes for the last week, and we rolled with it. Um, so this class will be a nine week class on why we are Protestant. I just want to say a couple of things. Um, of how I'm going to approach this class and um, why we're doing this. So one one thing that maybe I, I might approach this a little differently than sometimes in church is that for, for me, I, I really want to look at things historically as well as just, uh, just theologically. I'm going to look at it theologically as well. But what I mean by that is I think it's important to truly understand why things happen. So the, the Reformation was a historical event. Um, and there were a lot of factors that led to it. When we look at the church, the Catholic church, um, there was a lot of corruption. And I mean, Catholic scholars would agree with that. You're not going to have um, Catholics who say that the church in the, in the Middle Ages, the church at the time of the Reformation, was, was great and there was no problems. Almost everybody agrees that the, the church was corrupt that there was corruption in the church that needed to be reformed, where the disagreement comes between Catholics and Protestants is, then what, right? So was the Reformation, the Reformation in some sense, sometimes Catholics say, I think fairly, wasn't really a Reformation, it was like a revolution, it was a blowing up of the church, um, and what maybe it just needed a Reformation, that would be what maybe they would ask. Um, so I want to look at it historically as well as theologically. It's going to be really important to me also that I'm fair. So um, I'm a Protestant. I don't apologize for that. But when we talk about contemporary Catholic theology, I'm going to do so from what the Catholics say. So not from just what the Protestants say that Catholics say, if that makes sense. Um, one nice thing about Catholicism is, and if you were to go into my office, I have a huge bookshelf of Protestant theology books. Um, there's just you know dozens and dozens of different theology books. Well, the Catholic Church can kind of put all their theology into one because it's their official dogma. So it's very easy to find out what do Catholics believe about such and such. It's a little harder and more complicated. What do Protestants believe about such and such? Well, that's, oh, oh, there's a range to it, right? It's somewhat all over the place. So it's pretty easy to do that. And so when I'm we're talking about contemporary Catholic theology, I'm going to quote Catholics on it. Um, and we're talking about the Reformation. The theology of the Reformation, it's, it's different. There's a little bit of a different world in, um, in Catholicism in the 1400s and the 1500s and the, and the church then as there is now. So if, um, if anything, we're talking about Catholic theology and Catholic practices in the Middle Ages, and you have some background in Catholicism or no Catholics, and you're like, well, they don't believe that or they don't do that. Well, that, that might be true. It's been 500 years, right? So those are, those are different things. I want to look at the outline here in the notes. So today, we're going to we're going to introduce the class and talk about why the Reformation matters, what the issues were with the Reformation, and background to the Reformation. What, what really led up to it? Why did it happen? Why was it necessary? In the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Reformation historically. We're going to look at Martin Luther and look at his life and his um, and his beliefs, his actions, and the beginning of the Reformation. Or we'll look at Ulrich Zwingli and the Radical Reformation. Sometimes he's the neglected reformer, but he's pretty important in terms of, um, of the influence of what happened. We'll look at John Calvin. And I put Calvinism in, in quotation marks because I, I don't know that Calvin would have ever called it Calvinism. But we're going to look at John Calvin and Calvinism. 
And then week five, we'll look at the English Reformation, which really, um, in large part, is the, the churches that we go to, the church that we go to and probably churches you've been in the past, mostly came out of the English Reformation. There was some influence from Calvin and Luther, but mostly came out of the English Reformation. And then the next several weeks after that, we'll look at the theology of the Reformation. So we'll look at salvation through grace and faith alone. We'll look at authority, scripture, and the church and how those relate, um, saints, sacraments, and Mary. And then the, the last week, I find it kind of interesting. I have several books on the Reformation. One of my, oh, yeah. The last chapter of this book on rescuing the gospel, the story and significance of the Reformation is, is the Reformation over? The last chapter of this book, which if there's one book you read, this would be the one I push. But the last chapter is, is the Reformation over? And then I have this book, is the Reformation over? So it's, it's a question that people ask. Are we at the end of the Reformation or is it? Is it still ongoing? And so that's that's what we'll cover in the last week. And I'm going to say the Reformation still does matter today. It happened 500 years ago, but I, I think it still does matter today. So opening discussion, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, uh, but just a little bit. From what you know of Catholicism, what are the key issues of disagreement between Catholics and Protestants, and why are these issues important? All right, so any, any thoughts on that? What are the key issues? One key issue you mentioned a minute ago that you have a whole bookshelf of mm -hmm. Reformation theology, but only one Catholic, and that's because there's a Pope, and, mm -hmm. and so they have a yeah. um, way to basically say, well, whatever he says, yeah, or whatever you know, your official. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, actually, really important central issue of the Reformation then, and of differences between Protestants and Catholics today, has to do with the issue of authority. So, who has the authority and how do we determine authority? It's going to be a really important issue Excuse in the Reformation. Good. Anybody else? The importance placed on Mary. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think if we all scoot over a little bit, we do. So, you just scoot over a little bit. You sit in the next chair, and if you guys sit here, I think we're fine. And just as a reminder, I do have, um, uh, some of you just walked in. I am recording this at the request of a couple of people. Uh, not video, just audio, but if that makes you uncomfortable and you don't want to speak up, I still want you to speak up, but I won't force you. But just so you know, um, I am recording it. I'm not putting it on the internet. I'm just going to send it to people who ask for it, but uh, just just to be fair to let you know. So we are, um, for those of you who just walked in, we're on the uh, middle of the first page. Did I give you guys the notes? Matt, excuse the interruption. Oh, you're good. I'm going to have to go and come here do the count. Okay, so you're fine. In advance. All right. So we're in the middle of the first page opening discussion. From what you know of Catholicism, what are the key issues of disagreement between Catholics and Protestants? And why are these issues important? And Jeff said, um, really was talking about authority, the difference between um, the Catholics have the Pope as the authority. And as Protestants, we typically say that scripture is the authority. So, good. What else? Uh, what is the gospel? Yeah, the good. Key elements of what what the gospel is, what, how that... Yeah. And you'll talk about it more, but... Yeah, we, what well, is salvation? What is... How is that? Yeah. How are we saved? Um, on what basis are we saved? Um, differences in understanding justification, differences in understanding sanctification, differences in understanding after we die. Uh, so really the whole process of, of salvation, 
there are differences. Good. What else are some differences? Oh, somebody did say, I didn't write it down, Mary. And I'll add on to that. And the saints. Um, we talk about Mary sometimes at Christmas time, but um, Mary doesn't play as nearly as big a role in our church and in our uh, in our worship as it does in Catholic circles, for sure. Good. Any other thoughts? I think we hit, hit several of the main ones, right? So there's a difference in how we understand the church, for sure. There's a difference in how we understand scripture, what scripture actually is, um, and how we interpret it. A difference in authority, difference in how we understand salvation, difference in, in Mary um, and the saints. So moving on to why the Reformation matters. Here's some of the major issues of the Reformation. We previewed some of them already. Uh, but first, Scripture. So the, the Roman Catholic Church taught that she is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture and that the Bible derives its authority from the Church because um, it is a product of the Church. What, what, what they taught, what they, what they mean by this, is that uh, Christ founded the Church. So there's a really key text for Catholics uh, where uh, Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and um, they see Peter as the first pope. So Christ founded the church, and from the Catholic view, Scripture came from the church. So therefore, the, the church has the authority to interpret Scripture. So if I interpret Scripture one way, and the church interprets another way, I'm wrong, because the church has the right to interpret Scripture, and who am I as an individual to disagree with the church? So that's, that's the Catholic view of Scripture. Um, the Reformers, though, taught that Scripture has authority over the Church because the Church is birthed from Scripture, that the Church has rights to do the things it does because it's given in Scripture, right? And that if the Church contradicts what Scripture teaches, then the Church is wrong, whereas the Church would say that's impossible. Right? It can't be wrong because we have the authority to interpret it. So you see that's a, that's a pretty major issue when we come to disagreements in how we interpret Scripture, that's going to be that's going to be a real conflict, and in some ways, this is the major conflict of the Reformation. Um, everything else kind of births from it. Because when we have disagreements, when Martin Luther says, "This is how I read the Scripture," the Church is like, "Who are you? <laughs> what, what do you mean? This is how you read the Scripture?" Um, so that's that's going to be a very foundational issue. Secondly, sin and salvation. So the Reformers affirmed original sin and total depravity. And total depravity is the doctrine that. Because of sin, humans are helpless to save themselves. That we can't do anything in accomplishing our own salvation. We're helpless. So they protested against the church's teaching that works and sacraments helped to achieve salvation. Now, we're going to talk about, in, in just a minute, the five solas. So the, the, the reformers formed these five statements that were like grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, for God's glory alone. And really the operative word in all of those is alone. Because Catholics would say that we are saved by grace, and the church would say we are saved by grace. But it's it's grace cooperating with the sacraments, grace through the sacraments, grace cooperating with our works. Whereas what the Reformers are saying is, no, we're saved by grace alone, and that we don't add anything to our salvation. So those are going to be the operative ideas there. It's not that Catholics didn't believe in grace, they didn't believe in grace alone to achieve salvation. Third major point is the priesthood of the believer. So um, I believe, as a Protestant, that Scripture teaches that we're all priests. And what I mean by that is that we all have access to God through Christ. We don't need another mediator other than Christ. Um, and we, we can go to, go to God directly, right? 
But the, and so the reformers taught that Christ alone is the mediator between God and humans, and they rejected Roman practices of praying to Mary and the saints as mediatorial roles. So they believed that Mary is like this mediator between you and Christ. So you pray to Christ, and she'll go to Christ on your behalf. Or you pray to the saints, and they'll go to Christ on your behalf. But the reformers taught that, no, as priests, as a nation of priests, that believers can go to God directly. So you can see these are pretty important issues. These are very central to what it means to be saved, how we're saved, what it means to be the church, how do we know truth. All of those sorts of things are going to be foundational in the Reformation. So the Protestant Reformation is often summarized by the five solas. So sola or is sola is the feminine, solo is the masculine, but in Latin it means only. So again, only is the operative word here in each of these statements. Both Catholics and Protestants affirm the importance of Christ. But what reformers are saying is it's Christ alone by which we're saved, right? Um, Christ alone is our mediator. Um, they, in, and the importance of faith and grace and scripture. But while, again, while Catholics taught that salvation was achieved by faith cooperating with works, Protestants insisted salvation is by faith only. Right. So the five solas, sola scriptura. And scripture alone has authority for faith and practice. The church derives her authority from scripture and is subject to it. Sola fide, uh, salvation is achieved by faith alone and not by works. Sola gratia, salvation is achieved by God's grace alone and not by human effort. Solo Christo, salvation is through Christ alone, not through the church. He is the sole mediator between God and humans. And soli Deo Gloria, which is that salvation is for the purpose of achieving God's glory. And this should be the aim of all that we do. So th these are the kind of the... The battle cries of the Reformation, those five statements. Yeah. So I'm not familiar with the Catholic faith, mm -hmm. but if Catholics taught that salvation was achieved by faith and works, how do they reconcile Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Well, they would say that salvation is, so they, they would say like sacraments, and we'll talk about this a lot, but the sacraments are means of grace. So that when you're baptized, that is a way that God God, that's a means through which you get grace. And when you uh, go to Mass and receive um, the elements, it's a means through which you receive grace. So you, there's these things that you do that God uses to give you grace. Does that make sense? Kind of, so yeah. they, would, they would say, yeah, it's still God's work, but there's a cooperative effort there. So, yeah, good question. Does, it, does that... Yeah, I think Makes so. Yes. Yeah. All right. So some questions to ask that I, I think are important as we study the Reformation as doctrine. I'm not going to answer them right now. These are just maybe questions to percolate as we as we begin our study. So unity and doctrinal purity. I, I think this is something that Christians, a lot of Christians, struggle with on either side, right? So Jesus, in his last prayer, he prayed that his followers would all be one. He prayed for the unity of the church, and so a lot of people really, when we approach issues of of doctrine, they have this really strong concern that we all be unified, that we not divide unnecessarily. I think that's important. We ought not to divide too quickly or too easily. Um, Pastor Jay was talking about that this morning, really, at the end of his sermon, if you were there. Um, we have different views on, on COVID. We have different views on politics. We have different views on a lot of things. And if we divided on every single issue that we disagreed on, that would, that would be sinful, right? I, th I think we can agree to that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of 
um, space in Scripture given to warnings about false teachers and separating yourself from that, and the dangers of false doctrine. So this is a this is a balance that we we, we want to maintain. We want to maintain unity, right? But we also need to maintain doctrinal purity. So as we think about, as we approach the last week of the Reformation today, and how do we think about the Reformation, those are some of the things that we'll, we'll need to start to answer. Right? There's a movement today, but it's, it's less... Um, it's not as big a deal as it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, but evangelicals and Catholics together, which is trying to to, to um, bridge the gap between evangelicals and Catholics. So that, that would be a part of that question. And what in what ways can we work together? In what ways are we different and distinct and need to maintain that? Um, so that leads into the next one, the relationship between the evangelicals and Catholics today. What do we, how, what do we think of Catholicism? How do we interact with Catholics? Do we go preach the gospel to Catholics and say that they, they need to be saved and they're not Christians at all? Or do we embrace them as our brothers and sisters in Christ and work together? And how, how, do, we, how do we look at that? That's going to be important, too. And some of that we're going to have to look at how the church has changed since 1517 and today. Because it has, in some ways. In some ways it hasn't. Um, so the relevance of the issues raised. So I, I really think um, one really wonderful thing about looking at history is it helps you um, think about us today as well. So scripture, uh, looking at how how the, the doctrine of scripture was so pivotal 500 years ago, should help us shore that doctrine up today, I think, right? Those, those sorts of things. And then this last one might be a new one to you, but understanding the role of history, culture, and context in our own reading and misreading of scripture, I think we're going to see with the church that a lot of the reasons it went wrong was because it, it kind of adopted the culture and the perspective and the worldview of, of uh, pagan Europe, in some sense, I would say. Um, I, I really think that some of those things started to creep in. So when Constantine became a Christian, it changed Europe and the Roman Empire for the good in many ways. But also, it started having this confluence where it's hard, it's hard to tell where the church begins and where... <laughs> And where, where, the, where the world ends and where the church begins, if that makes sense. And so I think that same thing can be, be for us, is that perhaps there are times when we're completely blind to things and we don't realize it. When we look at the reformers, the reformers are not Jesus. They were wrong. They make mistakes, too. And there's going to be some places that we disagree with them. I, a lot of things I love about Martin Luther, but there are some things about Martin Luther that are not so laudable as well. And we'll, we'll look at that. We're going to have a fair look at the at the reformers as well. So hopefully this will help us take a more critical look at ourselves too. And um, we want to be we want to be in line with what scripture teaches and not just go with where our culture is or has been, if that makes sense. Are there any questions or comments so far? I'll take a coffee sip break. All right. So I know I have a lot of words today. <laughs> But uh, setting the stage for the Reformation. So how did we get to this point? And um, um, these first few are developments in theology. We've talked about some of them already as issues of the, of the Reformation. But how did we get from the early church and the scriptures um, to what we're going to see in medieval Catholicism? It's very far from that, honestly. It really is. But how did we get to that point? So Mary and the saints, one, one issue. Mary began to play a larger role in Christian worship throughout the medieval period. I think this is kind of the slow growth in her importance. Um, this largely began at the popular level. And I think this happened a lot with the church is that you have 
ordinary people who start incorporating Mary into their worship and this sort of thing. Perhaps it came from they worshipped goddesses in the past, and then they 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 needed some kind of substitute for what they've been doing. Um, and this isn't always bad. That that is bad. But um, for instance, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have a problem with um, celebrating Christmas on uh, December twenty fifth. Maybe you don't. I particularly don't. But the reason we do is that it was the winter solstice. It's a little bit off, a few days off, but it was the winter solstice, and Constantine wanted to to substitute this pagan festival and with a Christian day. And so they declared December 25th the birthday of Jesus, and we began celebrating. Is it wrong to celebrate Christmas on December 25th? I don't think so. But this is something that happened in the medieval period, is that there's a lot of pagan elements that the, the church begins to substitute Christian ones for. So you have these sort of pagan cults that worship goddesses or worship different gods of uh, gods of different nature or different elements, right? And so you start replacing those with saints. So now you have the, the saint of this, and you have the saint of this, and you have a feast that celebrates this and that, um, and so on and so forth. And it's, yeah. That's similar like, to All Saints Day Halloween. Right. Similar situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So some of it is what the, what the Catholic Church is trying to do is get rid of paganism by replacing pagan things with um, Christian things. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes the, the Christian elements took on pagan elements, if that makes sense. And so I think this is, kind of became a slow slide. Uh, yeah, good. Um, let's see. So then some theologians uh, found it was necessary, and this is maybe a theological problem rather than a popular level problem, to argue that Mary was sinless. And, and the reason they felt like this was important is that otherwise, they argued, that Jesus would have inherited a sin nature. So Jesus was born of Mary. So if Mary was sinful, then Jesus would have had a sin nature. So then they felt the need to teach that Mary was sinless. And how was she sinless? Well, she was made sinless in the womb. Uh, otherwise, you have to say her mother was sinless, and her mother was sinless, and all women are sinless, and um, I have a couple women in my family, and they're wonderful, but they're not sinless. <laughs> so, um, otherwise, you almost have to, you know, take it, take it from the whole female gender. Uh, but the, so this, the doctrine of the immaculate conception starts to develop and be debated in this period. It was not official church dogma or official church teaching, but it was popular teaching. Um, it was opposed by Thomas Aquinas and other people who said this was wrong, but this officially became church dogma in 1854. So after the Reformation. It wasn't officially the doctrine of the church during the Reformation, but it was a popular teaching that many people did think and believe that Mary was made sinless in the womb, and they saw that was necessary because otherwise Jesus would have been sinful. We don't agree with that, but anyway. Over time, Mary and the saints also began to be seen as intermediaries between the sinner and Christ, and they were prayed to with the hope that they were inter would intercede on the, on the saints' behalf, on, the, on, the, on Christians' behalf. So you prayed to St. Anne, or you prayed to St. Peter, or whoever, um, and with the hopes that they would talk to Christ for you, or pray to Mary, that she would intercede for you. That Mary was like a gentler side uh, of Jesus, and had Jesus' ear. And so if you prayed to Mary, she would help you out. So, although the official teaching of the church was that Mary and the saints would be venerated and not worshipped, that's a pretty blurry line at best and difficult for regular people to understand. And I think, actually going into this, um, part of the problem was just, just the very fact that people were illiterate in those, time, in, that, in those times. They couldn't read the scriptures. Most people 
would never have had the opportunity to learn how to read. And, and then on top of that, the church did all of their services. And this was actually until Vatican II in the 60s. This was true. This is a recent change of the Catholic Church. They did all their services in Latin. So you couldn't understand anything that was going on if you didn't speak Latin. Most people couldn't speak Latin. And so the, what they did, they had pictures and they had statues and these, these would tell the Bible stories and you're supposed to venerate and meditate and think on these things. But that very easily slides into worship. It's, it's very difficult to, where's the line between venerating a statue and worshiping a statue? And so this, this becomes a problem. This is not a problem that's a mystery to the Catholic Church. There are people in the church who are talking about this problem, but this is a popular level issue at the time. All right, any thoughts or questions on that one before I move on to the next? Okay, so the sacraments and self, just as a reminder, I'm talking about here too. There might be some differences between Catholics today and what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Catholics and at the time of the Reformation right now. So secondly, the sacraments and salvation. So the sacraments, from a Catholic view, were visible signs of God's grace. So these are means, this goes to your question earlier, these are means through which you would receive grace. And in the medieval period, they grew from two, communion and baptism, to seven. So confirmation, penance, extreme unction, holy orders, and matrimony were also considered to be sacraments. And salvation gradually began to be seen as achieved as through works and grace that's received through the sacraments rather than by God's grace through faith. So the church grew to see initial salvation as only possible through God's grace. So you're saved. The beginning of salvation is through God's grace. But then you need sanctifying grace. And this is a cooperation between God and humans. So initial salvation by grace and then cooperate, cooperating grace. In Catholicism, this is achieved through the sacraments. Not so much good works. You might think of being kind to your neighbor and all. No, it's it's really you're receiving grace through sacraments. Uh, so the, um, the, what's the Latin term? Ex opero operato. I think I might be pronouncing it wrong. But so when we take communion, for instance, we're, we're taking it as a memorial to what Christ has done for us. We're remembering what Christ did for us, right? And the value... There's only really value in taking it. This is from a Baptist uh, non-denominational perspective. The only value in taking it is if, if your heart is right, and it really draws you, right, re reminds you of the truth of the gospel. It doesn't do something if your heart's wrong. It doesn't have any sort of power or anything. But from the Catholic perspective, the actual act gives grace regardless, uh, regardless of whether you understand it or any of those other sorts of things. Same thing with baptism. That if you're not baptized, you're not in a state of grace. But you baptize infants, that puts them in a state of grace. If the infant were to die, they would then go to heaven. If they weren't baptized, they wouldn't because they're not in a state of grace. So baptism, whether the infant understands it or not, puts you in a state of grace. It's a means through which you receive grace from God. So you can't understand that what, they're, what the idea there is. So let's see. So this would become a, another very central issue in the Reformation. In the 13th century, as you see, uh, these doctrines don't all come at once. So in, this is uh, just a couple hundred years before the, the Reformation. The church adopted the, the doctrine of transubstantiation. So this is a relatively new doctrine in, in, the, in Luther's day. 
which is the view that the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And so they make, a, they make a distinction here between what they call, sorry to use words, but incidents and accidents. So what they mean by that is what the thing actually is and what the thing like looks like, smells like, tastes like. So by God's grace, the, the wafer uh, or the bread doesn't actually turn into, um, well, it does turn into Christ's body, but it doesn't taste like his body or smell like his body or look like his body because that would be difficult for us to consume. And so it's by God's grace, it maintains the accidents or the, the looks and smells and tastes of bread, but its true identity is Christ's body. And the same with the cup. It tastes like wine, but it actually is Christ's blood. So they, they and again, that's because you're receiving grace through these things, through Christ's body, through Christ's blood. That actual act gives you grace. Um, all right. So it also became customary. And this was something that Martin Luther was really upset about, by the way. But it became customary for the cup to only be taken by the priests. So early on, everybody would take both the wine and the, the bread. But it became customary that only that the laity would only get the bread. And the priest would be the only one that took the cup. And that became something that... Um, Martin Luther thought was was a really wrong, a distinction between laity and clergy that wasn't right. We're all priests. That goes back to the priesthood of the believer. So he took the cup for you all, rather than you all take it. All right. And lastly here, the church and the papacy. So the development of these ideas. So during the medieval period, the papacy began to claim supreme spiritual authority. We talked about this already at the beginning. Based on the statement made to Peter that um, Christ would build his church on him. So they took that as meaning that the church is uh, comes directly from God, from Christ, and that there's a succession of authority. So Christ gave his authority to Peter. Peter gives his authority to the next pope. And this also goes with um, cardinals and priests and bishops and the like, that there is a, a line of succession. So I give my um, priestly authority to Gary and he would give it to the next generation, so on and so forth. Does that make sense? So this is this is the um, this is the doctrine. So Pope Innocent III, um, for instance, declared that the Pope is the vicar of Christ, had the keys to the kingdom, and that anyone who did not submit to the Pope was a heretic. It's not a whole lot of room to disagree. Outside of the Catholic Church, there could be no salvation. But if you're not in the Catholic Church, you can't be saved. So a strong distinction be, grew, uh, developed between the clergy and the laity. Priests, by laity, I mean everybody that's not a pastor or a priest or whatever. So the um, this pre priests are mediators of God's grace, and they're a necessary go-between. If you want to commune, commune with God, you have to commune with God through the priest. So you have, in, in cap, medieval Catholic theology, you have to go through the priests, you go through Mary, you go through the saints. There's all these people... Um, that you have to go through before you can commune with Christ, right? not with Christ directly. The medieval social order kind of plays into this too. So there's the, kind of the way that the medieval mind thought about society is that there's those who fought, that's no, nobility, their job is to protect society and fight. There's those who prayed, those are the priests. And then there's those who worked, that's everybody else. And so they, the nobility fought on your behalf, the priests prayed on your behalf, and you worked on their behalf. Is that that's that was sort of the idea, and so your individual relationship with God wasn't all that important. 
um, you're you you're going to that's going to be done for you through the priests. Uh, they're going to do the praying for you, and they're going to take the cup for you, and those sorts of things. So the priests prayed on behalf of everyone else, and there's a strong divide between what is sacred and what is secular. Later, the reformers, insisting on the universal priesthood of believers, would insist on the sacredness of all work, especially John Calvin. So this was a really important thing to John Calvin, is every vocation is, is sacred. Every calling is sacred. So if you are a cobbler and you make shoes, that is, that is something that you're called on by God to do, and you can glorify God by doing it. Um, so there's there's not this strong distinction, especially in John Calvin's mind, between sacred sacred work and secular work. That all human beings created in the image of God can do sacred work and bring glory to God through it. Um, all right, let's see. All right, so some some discussion questions here. Um, do you see the changes being made in the church as consequential or inconsequential, and why? What do you guys think? <laughs> in terms of, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. In terms of the original foundational belief of Catholicism or Catholic Church and the changes, I'm still wrestling with all the changes, mm -hmm. but foundationally the question becomes are they believers, right? Mm -hmm. It's consequential. Right. And so. We'll wrestle with that question in the last week. Okay. But yeah, go ahead. But then all of this seems to be just furthering all these changes that have been made, seem mm -hmm. to be furthering the distance between a foundational, certainly what Martin Luther believes, and mm -hmm. what we teach, and where the Catholic, you know, Catholic Church is. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the gap just keeps getting wider. Right. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, there's, there's this growing gap. Uh, and interestingly, uh, uh, today, for instance, in our day and age, I think what we, we, we think in terms of what's new is usually good and what's old is usually bad. And so you might sort of think of that with the reformers. There's these new ideas that they have that are going to revitalize the church. That's not at all what the reformers thought. The reformers saw their ideas as old ideas that had been abandoned. <laughs> so they appealed to scripture and they appealed to people like Augustine and they appealed to church fathers to say, now, the church has actually abandoned um, the true gospel and true Christian teaching. They weren't saying we have some new ideas um, that we're rejecting the old. But good. Any other thoughts? Do you think do, do these things matter? Why? They do, I think, because they're inextricably linked to the politics and the sociology of the of the medieval times. Mm -hmm. um, power was centralized in the higher echelons. Europe, I mean, England that we um, rebelled against was even this way in mm -hmm. the 1700s. The power was at the top and the peons were at the bottom. And the church was seen as the, the repository of um, access to God, I guess. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these doctrines, I think, seem to um, just reinforce that by mm -hmm. making them exclusive and and making themselves indispensable yeah. to the people below them. You need us yes. to pray, and you need us to have access. Yeah, absolutely. Good. 
Jeff, were you raising him? Well, uh, I thought you did a good job of highlighting the fact that the culture and the way society was um, set up plays an impact on how the church is interpreting or how the mm -hmm. church is set up as well. Mm -hmm. And it's also important for us, and that was just said just a minute ago um, as well, but it's important for us to also think about that even today, right? How the culture impacts how we interpret scripture even mm -hmm. today on mm -hmm. issues that yep. aren't necessarily the ones we're talking about now mm -hmm. or during the Reformation, but right. um, we are part of culture. And I'm, I'm excited about obviously Jay's next yeah. uh, preaching series. So that's going to help us also think through how we need to be faithful to understand what scripture says and try to do it in a way that's not just being interpreted through what is Mm -hmm. in, in vogue today for mm -hmm. and and also it's interesting to think if you think in a broader sense too the reformation probably would have never happened if some of the inventions and things didn't happen mm -hmm. back yep. the printing press right. you said yeah. earlier that oh I, I don't people, think it would have happened without the printing yeah, press so yeah so people mm -hmm. earlier couldn't read yep. and everything was centralized mm -hmm. in this church but right you know with the ability of the printing press to come out and more people being able to read they can now the reformation yeah. was able to happen and that, that's a cultural thing mm -hmm. but it impacted the church yeah. well in, de in the defense of the church in some sense at least um if only a few people can actually read the scriptures yeah. Right. Then there isn't. It really doesn't make sense for everyone to read the Bible on their own. Like we we kind of assume, mm -hmm. right? That you need somebody to do that for you in some sense. So to us, it's like, well, how insulting that somebody needs yeah. to read the Bible for us. But in those days, that was of course. <laughs> I don't know how to read yeah. uh, until books. When books started becoming widespread and easily available, then the value of reading became a lot. Yeah. I just think the whole thing with all these rules and stuff you had to follow mm -hmm. it was just making it too complicated. Yeah, and, that's a good point. You know, and and I think when the Reformation came, it was like, you know, we believe, you know, and all of a mm -hmm. sudden you can you can speak to to God and Jesus on your own, and you don't have to go through all this stuff. Yeah, it almost made it too complicated, like Judaism mm -hmm. when, they, when they had all those right. rules in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. No, that was something that was that I, I think was important to the reformers too. Was again, it, it was this is all done by the church, and you just kind of went along with it. But did the the laity even understand all that was going on? Usually not. So there were some things that weren't really problems that the, the church didn't get wrong, that the laity did, but the laity didn't have a great knowledge of it. Where so especially John Calvin, the other reformers too. They really emphasize the importance of your 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 individual worship and glory of God, right? So your your job, your work is glorifying to God. It can be a vocation. You need to study the scriptures and pray on your own. We assume those sorts of things, and sometimes we don't really realize that we're taking that for granted. That's not a. <laughs> but to do that, you need to understand for yourself, and so an individual, personal understanding became important to the reformers, and it hadn't been so important in the prior good all right um so the second one here there is sometimes a tension in theology in studying these things between a conservative impulse which is to return back to the early church as much much as possible and a more progressive impulse to adapt to new challenges and ideas and which impulse are you more likely to follow and why 
Well, you put that word progressive in there, and that just throws me off. Well, I don't necessarily <laughs> I mean it in today's political, to political lingo. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I feel like we have to do both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be, times yeah. aren't like medieval. Well, I think Jeff made an important point in talking about the the printing press, right? So sometimes there are changes um, in culture and around us that are going to force us to do some adaptation, right? It will. And so there is a difference between 1300s when very few people could read the Bible isn't available in their language. And today, when, for goodness sakes, we all have however many Bibles, and if if you have a phone or a Kindle, you can easily have... 40 Bibles in your pocket, right? So um, there's a big difference, and finding a Bible in English is not a problem at all. Um, But that wasn't the case then. So there's there's changes and adaptations that take place there, too. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, going back to when Scripture, especially like the um, epistles were written, they were not read by individuals. They were read mm-hmm. publicly right. to churches. So, mm-hmm. yep. Is that what we want? Is that what the authority of Scripture means? We have to return to. Yeah, there's right. a lot of complications. There's some of both. The, the yeah. truth doesn't change, but sometimes practices change and approaches change. Yeah. Um, I think for me, if I personally, I think this is like when I was younger. Like like most people, younger people tend to want. You're growing up in the church, you think you want you're kind of into what's new and hip. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as I've matured as a Christian, I think what's the key on this is they can't we can't ignore our culture mm-hmm. and separate to the point where we're really isolationist. But mm-hmm. I think the, the key is looking at things or filtering things through a biblical world view and what is our foundation and approaching it that way. Um, whether it's, you know, whatever the issue of the day is. And I think that's what the key, I think that's what the reformers were focusing on too, is what is um, getting back to, to what is the foundation of Christianity, mm-hmm. those foundation, I think that's what, you know, what, what his, the five souls were based on, is getting back to the, mm-hmm. those key tenets of Christianity, and in many ways, the Catholic Church had drifted mm-hmm. from that. Yeah. And I think the same today, whether it's, you know, name your issue that's within the church, but I think that's what it is. We can't we can't ignore it or say we're not going to we're going to focus on only how they did the early church because we right. have whether it's printing press or whatever it right. is, we have to mm-hmm. deal with those at some point. And I think it's just having that foundation, having that that a correct worldview to be able to approach those, and mm-hmm. whether it's you know. How do you use social media? The issues change. The issues change. But the truth doesn't. I mean, for instance, uh, we're going to do this series on Christ and culture. And one of the things that um, Pastor Jay mentioned we're going to talk about is race. And you might think of that as always being relevant. 
But if you're going to go back to medieval Europe and you never really left the town that you lived in and you didn't interact with people of different races, people kind of stayed where they were. Um, that was an issue people thought about a whole lot. Right? Now, this, the truth about Scripture hasn't changed and can speak to those issues. Right? But the issues change. Sometimes the things that we have to grapple with and think deeply about will change because of the world that we were living in. Well, by the time they got to the 1700s, 1500s, when they started taking importing slaves mm -hmm. from Africa into right. the Caribbean area and the, and the colonies mm -hmm. and things like that, and England and other places, Australia, that things had to change. I mean, people were starting to get confronted about the Wilberforce and all that. Mm -hmm. whole, uh, hey, it's wrong to have slaves right. starting mm -hmm. to show up around the 1700s and 1800s. Although, interestingly, the, um, the Catholic Church, if you want to call it the Catholic Church at this point, but Constantine um, and following, they outlawed slavery. Because you know, slavery was common in the Roman Empire. And then it, it picked, and back, then up it picked back up again. But when it picked back up again, it was racially charged, usually. Yeah. It, yes. was, it was, it was, it was, it was inferior beings. Right, exactly. So it was a different sort of slavery, and it took people doing mm -hmm. theology again. <clears throat> yeah, Jeff, you had your hand up. I was just trying to answer this question tension in theology. Mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, theologically, we want to conserve the truth. Yes. Right? Keep the truth that we know it's been delivered to the saints. You know, Jude says we want to pass that on. Mm -hmm. But it's always being reforming, right? Mm -hmm. so Reformation is continuing to happen because the church is constantly being challenged with new ideas mm -hmm. that need to be reformed or progressed right. into being more. You know, like today, we're talking about a gender issue that nobody's ever had to right. talk about and think through. Right, exactly. So we're going to be more specific on mm -hmm. how we're thinking about that, although the truth hasn't changed, right? right. So we were conserving the truth. We're just being progressive, I guess. Or, I mean, I mean, it's not even the best word, but just we're reforming ourselves and our mm -hmm. thinking on being more, hopefully, more biblical. We're forced to continue yeah. to do yeah. theology. Yeah. So we'll never be yeah. done doing theology. For sure. Because it's always speaking to the issues of the day, which are always changing. Um, but the truth itself never changes, and that's the base from which we do theology. So there's really, there's both. We have to be thinking and continuing to think about new issues. Um, at the same time, we have to stick, stick to the to scriptural and biblical truth. Good. All right, so um, I, I came from two different authors here, and this will close us up. But factors that led to the Reformation, some of these are historical, some of these are have to do with what's going on in the church at the time. Some of them are theological. Um, this first list um, are mostly historical factors that are also important. So, so here are some historical factors that really led to the Reformation. So first, Islam. You may not think of Islam as having much to do with the Reformation, but um, people in the in the Middle Ages they were they were scared of Islam. So Islam had conquered most of what had been the Eastern Church. They conquered so the the Crusades were largely a a, um, a reaction. To, to the growth of Islam, and um, the Islam conquered Turkey, which had been Christian for thousands of years, conquered North Africa, which had been Christians for, Christian for thousands of years, conquered Spain, um, threatened France. There was, so there was, there was a threat from both East and West with, with Islam. And so this, as it moved into Europe through Spain and Eastern Europe, so this sparked a spirit of nationalism, and this actually helped to facilitate the Reformation too, because we're not just thinking as one big church that we might actually have. Uh, the, well, it wasn't Germany then, but the Holy Roman Empire 
which to quote Voltaire, I think accurately, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they might decide, well, I disagree with the Pope, and here's somebody that might give me a little bit more power. I, I think some of the national powers um, liked the Reformers because it broke the power of the church over them and gave them a stronger power. And that's part of the reason some of them backed them. I don't think that's necessarily a holy reason for backing the Reformers, but I do think that that had something to do with the success of the Reformation. Secondly, the Renaissance. So the Renaissance was, again, was also sparked by interaction with Islam, but in sort of a different way. So um, learning in medieval Europe, ahead, especially of, of um, the Greek philosophers of Plato and Aristotle, had really declined. They had lost um, contact with them. But the, there was, a, there was a, a renaissance of learning in the Islamic world that as we interact, as Europe interacted with Islam, we grew in our knowledge of some of these ancient writers again. And so there was this movement in the Renaissance to go of ad fontes, which means back to the source. So we wanted to, there was this real strong thing of how have we moved away and how have we lost um, knowledge? So scholars returned to the Greek New Testament, which we'll talk about. So Erasmus, who was not a reformer, but was very influential in the Protestant Reformation, he came out with the Greek New Testament and new Latin translation, saying that the Latin Vulgate, which is what the church used, was wrong in some places, because he went back to the sources. Well, that was hugely influential in John Calvin and Martin Luther. Um, so this was, this was important. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, the inventing of the printing press, which further uh, enabled the spread of ideas and access to scripture. Number three, there was an increased emphasis on humanism, and by humanism, don't necessarily hear secular humanism, but of human rights um, and, and individualism, which helped set the stage for people thinking about ideas like the individual priesthood of the believer and emphasis on individual choice and salvation, and later, uh, freedom and conscience of the will. And then number four here, there was increased corruption in the church. Catholics, uh, if, if there were Catholic scholars in the room here today, um, they wouldn't disagree with this. Um, nobody really argues that this isn't the case. Um, the selling of indulgences allowed somebody to basically buy sin. Uh, so I could, I could buy an indulgence that would give me forgiveness for a sin I was going to commit or a sin I had committed um, and not have my time in purgatory. Or I could do this for my grandfather, um, shorten his time in purgatory by buying an indulgence and these sorts of things. And the church used this to build large churches in Rome which people in Germany were like, hmm, <laughs> not, really, not really liking this. Um, so by paying with money, they could be assured of uh, forgiveness for sins they were about to commit or planning to commit. Simony, which was very common in this period, was selling of church offices. One of the popes, not too um, far before Martin Luther, very openly bought the office. He paid all the cardinals to, so that he would be elected. And people were like, really? This is, this is, the, <laughs> this is the sole authority over us? Um, People had problems with that. Relics, uh, Martin Luther famously, I think rather um, hilariously, said there were more pieces of the true cross in Europe. Uh, there were enough pieces of the true cross in Europe to build Noah's Ark. Because all over Europe, there's these little pieces of the true cross mm -hmm. that having some kind of contact with it would give you grace, um, lessen your time with purgatory, those sorts of things. Um, so these are all over Europe. Heads of John the Baptist, actually, were, there's more than one, <laughs> and you could go see the head of John the Baptist, and that would, or one of the heads of John the Baptist, and that would lessen your time in purgatory. So um, 
They toured Europe. They were installed in churches. And for a fee, you could view them and touch them. Um, and this could contribute to your salvation. And by the way, this isn't something that nobody was talking about or nobody had a problem with. There were lots of people saying, this is, this is really messed up. But they didn't really have a whole lot of recourse to do about it. So it's not like Martin Luther is the only person saying, there's a problem here. <laughs> there were others. But um, the difference is, are you trying to reform the church from the inside? Or is there going to need to be a, a break? And that's, that's part of what, when we get to Luther next time, we'll talk about. All right, some other factors. So this is from Reeves. By the way, if you've never read Michael Reeves, um, he is a delightful writer. He has a book on the Trinity called Delighting in the Trinity, a book on Christ called Rejoicing in Christ. This is called The Unquenchable Flame, Discovering the Heart of the Reformation. He's a really, really good writer. It's not very long, very well written. So I would commend this one to you. It's at the end of the notes, if you, so you don't have to get it from him now. But here are some his factors that led to the Reformation. So increased religious fervor. So there is increased corruption in the church, for sure. But people actually cared more about religion than they had in previous times. You see there's an increase in pilgrimages. There's an increase in, um, in people paying for these sorts of things. More churches were built. More books were being written. Um, so as people grew in their concern of religious matters, their concern over the state of the church grew, too. So people actually really cared about religion and theology, and more and more people were doing so. I think that also goes back to the printing press in some sense, too. Second, and so we're going back into history here, but this is really important background to the Reformation, too. Have you guys ever heard of the Great Schism and of the three popes? Um, did you know there was a time where there were three popes? Kind of almost four. Um, so in 1305, the newly elected pope, so this is 200 years before the Reformation, <clears throat> decided to quit Rome for Avignon, which is in southern France, and uh, move the seat of power from Italy to France. So it had been in Italy for thousands of years, and now it's in France. And France actually really liked this. <laughs> France was like, cool, now we have the papacy. And if you're Italian, or if you're in Rome, you're really upset about this, that now, now all of a sudden all the popes are French, and they're not Italian anymore. So um, France now dominated. So in uh, 1378, the cardinals met in Rome to to pick the new pope, and there was a mob of Italians surrounding the, the church where they were picking the new pope, demanding that they pick an Italian pope. And if we don't, we're going to burn, burn the church down and kill you guys. So they, they picked an Italian pope. Um, but then later they said, well, this was under duress, so they picked a new pope. So now there's two popes, and they both excommunicate the other and say, <laughs> you're going to hell, and they, they're now two popes. And this is a worse crisis than before. So they got together, and they elected a new pope, and said the other two weren't popes, but nobody, nobody stepped down. So now there's three popes. <laughs> this is a real big mess, um, real chaos. So finally, the Council of Constance met in 1414. So this is 100 years of this. That's a long time, all right? So it met in 1414, and it took four years, but they elected a new pope. Two of the other three popes resigned, and then they just said to the other guy, you're gone, and nobody really followed him. So finally, we resolved the crisis. There's one pope again. Um, but you can see how that would set the stage for the Reformation. If you're saying that the pope is the, the prime authority, well, if we can't figure out who's the pope, it takes us 100 years to figure out who the pope is, um, that doesn't give you a lot of confidence. So it was an important backdrop. Also, papal corruption. Um, following the schism, there was a series of bad popes. And again, Catholics wouldn't disagree with me in saying this. They were bad popes. Pope Alexander VI in 1492 openly bought the votes needed for the papacy. I was like, I'm just by the, by the office. 
Um, he uh, also fathered many children. If you know anything about Catholicism, um, priests and popes and cardinals, they're not supposed to be married uh, or have children. They're supposed to be celibate. Well, he, he wasn't. He poisoned cardinals and he held orgies in the Vatican. So that's pretty bad. Um, the next pope, Julius II, also fathered children. And following Julian was Leo X, who, in, in addition to his excessive spending and sexual deviancy, was rumored to be an atheist. Um, he might have been. So um, there's debate about that. So again, these scandals serve to increase skepticism of spiritual leadership in Rome. Um, people are like, eh, I don't really have a whole lot of faith and trust in this. And then building projects. So the, the city of Rome is on the decline. And if you were to visit Rome today, you would see many beautiful churches and Michelangelo's art and the Sistine Chapel and all that. Well, those were funded in the couple hundred years before the Reformation, again, largely by selling indulgences to poor people outside of Italy. So this is wonderful and beautiful from an artistic perspective. But if you're in Germany or France or, or Italy or, I mean, or uh, England or something, and your poor people are all paying this for something beautiful in Rome that you'll never see, this, this doesn't really seem right. So this, this was a big point for Martin Luther. The indulgences being sold in Germany at that time were to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica and, in Rome. And it was largely funded by peasants in Germany being told that by paying this money, you can lessen your ancestors' time in purgatory and such. And then forerunners for the Reformation. We, you know, a nine-week study, I don't have time to study everything and everybody. So I feel a little bad that we're not going to talk about these people. But we often think of Luther as the, as the beginning of the Reformation. But there were people that went before him that were pretty important as well. So John Wycliffe. He translated he, England. He translated the Bible into English. He taught that the Bible, not the Pope, is the supreme authority in religious matters. Um, his teachings had a strong influence on Jan Hus, who uh, in Bohemia, modern-day Hungary, I think, or is it? No, no, Czech. In Czech, I think he's yeah, Prague, yeah. So in Czech Republic, um, Hus saw the corruption of the Church and denied the power of the Pope to issue indulgences. He doubted the, the uh, doctrine of purgatory because it wasn't in scripture. So Huss was burned at the stake um, for heresy, for denying those doctrines and denying the Pope's authority. And Wycliffe was dug up and his bones were burned. Um, now, they had some influence in their time period, but not as, not as much. I think a large part of this has to do with the printing press and some of those other factors. Um, but they're in the backdrop of when the Reformation is starting. So it's not like these are completely new ideas. They're precursors to what's to come. And, and really... Perhaps the most important um, historical thing that, that happens that really starts the Reformation is Erasmus in the Greek New Testament. So Erasmus did not join the Reformation. Um, Erasmus really believed that the church needed to reform, but he wanted kind of a slow, gentle Reformation. And he didn't like the way Luther kind of just threw a bomb in the middle of everything, everything and blew things up. But in 1516, so one year before Martin Luther's whole 95 Theses deal, he published a Greek New Testament in his own Latin translation of the New Testament that exposed errors in the church's teaching um, and that had been taught for hundreds of years. And so this had a huge influence on Calvin and Luther, and it's impossible to underestimate the influence of that. So that is where we'll close with the beginning of uh, the, the backdrop to the Reformation and why I think this is important. I put some resources there if you want to look at, at books. But I put an easy, medium, and hard. The hard book there isn't actually really 
that part, it's just long. It's like a thousand pages, so you might not want to read it. But if I was going to push one book on you, I would push The Unquenchable Flame. Not very long, easy to read, very good. Um, Pastor Jay actually gave me these two books a while ago, uh, but Rescuing the Gospel. It was, it's also a fairly easy read by Ed Irwin Lutzer, The Story and Significance of the Reformation. And then this is really about tracing the heart of the gospel from Christ to the Reformation, saying that the ideas of the Reformation weren't new ones and tracing, tracing them throughout church history. This one, um, so Mark Knoll, I, I really like him as a historian. I don't agree with him all the time, but is the Reformation over? He's trying to look at Catholicism and, um, and evangelicalism and where, where the differences are not so strong anymore and where the differences still are. He's more positive towards evangelical and Catholics together than I am. But he's a good historian, and he's trying to be fair and balanced. So that might be a, a decent read um, for you um, if you're interested in those sorts of things. But any last questions, comments, smart, re smart remarks before we, we close? All right, well, thank you for coming. I want to pray for us, and then I'll let you go. Father, thank you um, for the opportunity to study these things. And, and Father, we really do stand on the, the shoulders of, of giants, of, of men and women in the past that you have used um, in the furtherance of the gospel and of your kingdom. Um, Father, they, they were not perfect. They made mistakes, and we want to learn from those mistakes. But we also don't want to, um, to abandon what, what they got right. So, Father, I pray that as we study the Reformation, this won't be merely a historical study with a bunch of facts and dates and names. But, um, Father, help us to see the significance of the issues uh, that we're discussing for our lives today and our walks with you and um, in, in our interactions with, uh, with others and those on the outside. We want to be uh, committed to truth. We also want to be, uh, be unified in a biblically correct way. And so, Father, guide us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.